Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome, Hardcore Herpers, to another exhilarating edition of Herpin' Time Radio, which you're listening to because you don't have anything better to do. And uh, we sure appreciate it. Anyway, I'm Justin Geyer, sitting Herpin' Time Radio Master Control, and I'm joined with the Pennsylvania wild man, J.D. Hartzell. J.D., what's going on? Hey, brother. You know what? I've been working on a crazy monitor cage, and it's pretty bad when you can actually go into the cage and you're inside it. You feel like you know. You feel like you're the animal in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's imagine. It's a different experience, and I tell you what, it is just funny because I'm like, okay, this is how how these animals feel when they're in here. You know what I mean? So it kind of gives you a different perspective on that. Anyways, but uh, yeah. yeah, I heard that you had a tight end trip. That you know, we did the show about Snake Grove, but you know, as soon as we got off the air. You had some awesome people that you met, man. Yeah, a little while after we got the air. I mean, um, that, that early that Thursday morning, I mean, it woke me up when the rain started. I was in my tent, but about three in the morning, that Thursday, um, Thursday morning, cold front came through and just shut the road down. I've never been absolutely skunked down there, but it happened that day. And um, but I. Uh, I was out there walking it anyway and hiking around, climbing in the bluffs and stuff, looking, but there just wasn't anything out. Um, but it's, it's crazy, J.D., because uh, at the Indianapolis Reptile Show, called the Midwest Reptile Show, um, we always set up next to the guys that uh, from the Hoosier Herpetological Society. And I saw two of those guys walking towards me with a stranger, and um, I just hollered, hey, it's a small world, isn't it? And uh, anyway, they, you know, they said, hey, and all that. And then uh, the guy I didn't know says, well, they said they saw my car in the, in the parking lot. I got to let my dog out. Um, they said they saw my car in the parking lot because I got the Geyer Genetics magnets on the doors of my car. And the guy I didn't know, he just says, um, did your car have wheels when you pulled in? Because it's a back there sitting up on blocks just joking around with me. I said, yeah, yeah, you're funny. <laughs> and then the, the guys I knew from the Hoosier Herpetological Society said, yeah, this is Robert Applegate. And I said, I kind of, whoa. I was like, Bob Applegate? They said, yeah. So I got to meet Bob Applegate on Snake Road. Um, and, you know, J.D., um, I only found four snakes in three days down there because of the weather conditions and such. But, and normally I can find four snakes in the first hour. Um, but made up for it by the fact I found a timber rattlesnake, and I also found a Mississippi green water snake, the Nerodia cyclopion. Um, which was significant about that was that that's only the second one I've ever seen in my life, and the last one I saw was 10 years ago. So that was a good find. So. And I met Bob Applegate down there. So, all in all, it was worth it. Um, and then, Sunday, um, yes, that was the day's Monday. Yeah, yesterday, we've ended over there at the Midwest Reptile Show in Indianapolis. And they had just done the Herpetological Symposium in Indianapolis, the Hoosier Herpetological Society did. They had guest speakers and everything. That's what Bob Applegate is in the area for. And I missed it, but I had a good excuse. I was on Snake Road uh, that, that you know during the, that time. And um, anyway, I'm sitting there at our table, and we always set up next to these people. And 
I look up and um, standing right there, to, and I recognized him standing right there talking to the members of the Hoosier Herpetological Society is Jeff LeClaire, who's been a guest on Herpin Time Radio. He's in all three Herpers DVDs, um, but he's talking to him, and I, I kind of like that's Jeff LeClaire. Well, he looked over at me, and I get something in my face. Um, this said recognition. Um, so he got done talking to them. He came over and talked to me for a while. And I'll tell you what, he's a cool guy. Uh, he's he's really down to earth. He's really really good guy. <laughs> so that was uh, pretty pretty insane. And you know we had a good show and everything, and um, a lot of good people over there in Indianapolis. Uh, so that's what I've had going on today. We just fed snakes. Tomorrow we got to clean them. But we've got Zach Brinks from um, Josh's Frogs on the line, so it's going to be frogging time today. <laughs> so we're going to talk about all things froggy. Anyway, J.D., we, he's been waiting on the line for a little while. You want to bring him on? No, let's bring him on, brother. Actually, right before we do that, we forgot to do it on the Snake Road special. I'm going to play our ad from our sponsors. We're, we're honestly trying not to piss off our sponsors. <laughs> Right. <laughs> hey, check out Herpentine Radio sponsor Hooper Tafana by Joshua Ortiz. He specializes in Asian water monitors, tegus, Australian water dragons, and many more. All right, let's bring uh, Zach on. Zach, hey welcome back to Herpentine Radio. That's going Golly, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you back on. It's been quite a while since we've talked to you. And for, I'd like to start off by congratulating you on the, the birth of your daughter. Yeah, thanks. It is by far the most awesome, most tiring experience of my life to this point, but it is pretty dang cool. Yeah, well, congratulations, man. Anyway, thank you. I, I know it. we were off. Hey, no problem. Um, we were off the air for two years, and so it's been at least that long since we've talked to you, and you were kind of getting into telling us a little bit of what's been happening at Josh's Frogs there before the show, and we were all talking in private. So anyway, I just want to know um, what's all changed at Josh's Frogs in the last couple of years. Um, it is pretty crazy. Um, the animal area, which I oversee, we've about doubled in size, a little bit more so. Um, we're up to just under 50 employees now which is pretty crazy, uh, if I do say so myself. Mm-hmm. And we are, um, we've taken over the entire building that we were renting a portion of last time we talked. We're up to about 37,000 square feet there. And then we've got three really big greenhouses about an hour away where we grow a lot of our plants um, for animals and stuff. Okay, um, we also, yeah. just earlier this year, started a reptile branch, which is really exciting and something close to my heart too. So that's pretty okay. cool. So we're not just frogs anymore, which is kind of awesome. All right, yeah, we're going to have to get into that a little bit. Now, with the frogs, is it more of the same species, or have you added new species, or what's going on there? Um, it's a little bit of everything. Um, we've been kind of hammering home and repeating success with some of our more common species, but also uh-huh. we've been adding a ton of new stuff. Um, actually, just about um, six, eight weeks ago, we got our first European import in um, that we brought in with a lot of really cool, unusual species. Um, we also went through and, you know, bought a lot of new breeders and, uh, we've also created what we're calling our certified breeder program where a lot of those bread and butter species or more uncommon species that individuals out there have success with. It allows us uh-huh. to bring them into our facility, um, test them for diseases, 
um, quarantine them for at least a month or so and make sure everything's going well with them and everything. And then actually not only acquire some for us for breeding, but then sell some directly to the public too. So that's pretty cool. Okay. We're really excited to work that out. Um, just allows us to offer a lot more than we can pr- we can produce alone with the, the space constraints and stuff we have. And at the same time, a lot of our customers are just doing some amazing thing with these critters. So that kind of helps us share their successes with the rest of the, the industry. So really neat stuff. Yeah, it sounds like it. All right, J.D., what do you got? Yeah. I do know that you had a lot more Peter insects on, available on the Dawson Frogs. And, I mean, there were so many different kinds. I was a little overwhelmed there. It's um, pretty crazy. we um gotten really fortunate. I work with some really amazing people and uh, who are just as passionate and crazy, if not more so, than I am. And uh, we've just been able to do a lot lately. We've really expanded... Um, feeder insects. Um, we actually have two on-staff entomologists now, believe it or not, that have degrees, you know, just studying insects and um, expanded a lot in the pet bugs, um, bringing, you know, millipedes, a ton of different varieties of isopods. Those are really popular. I have one guy and he has, we have a, a 16 by um, 14 foot room that is just full of isopods. That's all we do in there. It's pretty crazy. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, what are you bringing into, like, your reptile branch that you were talking about? What kind of reptiles are you guys starting to work with? Um, it's really cool. Um, I got really lucky, and I um, brought on a guy earlier this year named Will, who um, has a degree from Bowling State University, where he played a huge mm-hmm. role in their, um, their herpetology program there. He oversaw a lot of the collection and volunteer stuff um, that ran that. Um, it's a really unique situation at that school. They have a lot of live animals they actually breed, and they sell the offspring, and that's how they support their herp program. It was really unique for a college and really, really cool. Um, brought him on. He's been doing a lot of geckos. Um, you know, your bread and butter stuff like crested geckos and gargoyles. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, next year we'll be producing several thousand leopard gecko babies and stuff. That You know, it's great first pets for people getting into the hobby. And then also a lot of the yeah. more uncommon stuff. Um, we're in the process of building out a um, 12 by 30 foot room with approximately 200 cages, um, primarily for day geckos. Um, really okay. similar overlapping naturalistic viz, and then a lot of the micro geckos. So we already produ- already produce you know hundreds of morning geckos every month, but also a lot of those little cool leaf litter geckos, um, spheridactylus and gonatodes, as really tiny little really colorful animals that in a lot of cases actually occur um, the same area as dart frogs do in the wild, and actually make pretty good um, cohabs in their in their vivaria, which is really neat, and a lot of people are after that. Yeah, yeah, that would be really interesting to see that. Um, that'd be, yeah, it's definitely a different twist on things. I mean, you know, not the dart frog vivarium is pretty enough, but wow, <laughs> it had some geckos in there. That's definitely very interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, we're doing that. We're also working with a bunch of different varieties of um, small tree frogs that overlap their native ranges with some of these dart frogs. So we're hoping by huh? the end of next year or so we'll be able to actually offer a, a very large setup, you know, something on the order of 100-plus gallons. Um, with very specific instructions and plants and feeders that can really guide people towards kind of replicating that slice of nature, um, you know, not only in the plants involved in like one species, but possibly two or three that, you know, utilize different areas of the vivaria and utilize different foods and won't really, you know, interfere with each other's well-being while they're in there. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting how that would work. Now, it has to be like really small tree frogs just to keep from eating the dark frogs. Yeah, there's a lot of smaller tree frogs. So we're focusing a lot on um, South American bird poop frogs. 
Uh, we just had a couple wow. thousand of those come out of the water, which, you know, who doesn't love little frogs that look like bird poops? But, um, <laughs> you know, those guys, a lot of different highly Ibricata, which are the, um, well, those are the genuses, I think, Dendrophosphus now. Um, but hourglass tree frogs, and then um, we different varieties of clown tree frogs. Um, one of the importers yeah. we worked with um, works closely with us on frog farm in Peru, and they're actually able to provide us with um, seven different species of Peruvian clown frogs which are really cool. Okay. Um, just, you know, different colors and patterns that were still a little young since they were actually bred down in Peru, but we're raising up to hopefully um, produce. So it should be really, really cool. I'm excited to see what 2018 was an awesome year, and I'm really excited to see what 2019 brings. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you guys have been just super busy. Um, wow, I wouldn't expect an expansion like this. You guys are just covering all kinds of different areas. Now, you're still selling the uh, supplies and stuff, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, animals have expanded a lot, but supplies have even expanded more so. Um, as we get larger, oh. we're able to kind of use economy of scale and develop a lot of um, – spend a lot of time developing a lot of custom products. Um, that's one of my favorite parts. Um, I have a really awesome management team underneath me. So I was mm-hmm. able to actually, you know, have them um, – take on more and more of overseeing the animal areas and stuff so I can develop some really cool products to help people keep their animals, you know, better or easier. Um, one of my favorites mm-hmm. from this last year was a stuff called BioBedding Tropical. And it's actually a soil that's designed around crested geckos, but we can be used with a wide range of temperate and tropical animals that can support um, springtail and isopod growth. It even comes preceded with beneficial fungi that help keep everything clean. So you can very easily set mm-hmm. up and, you know, basically – by dumping a bag of dirt, you know, out of a plastic bag into your tank and sticking some plants in and a couple bugs, have a bioactive setup virtually overnight, which we yeah. were really, really thrilled to bring to market. That took about two years of development for us to get where we were happy with offering it publicly. Now, that would be cool. Basically, you never have to clean cage. Yeah, your, this uh, stuff is awesome. Your, your... Um, we des- We designed it around to where you can do some really minor cleaning about every six months or so. Um, just uh-huh. to stay on top of things and make sure everything stays healthy. We found that sometimes right. the fungi and some of the, the bugs you put in there to keep stuff clean do so well, they actually produce <laughs> in high enough amounts where you actually have to remove some of them. So we recommend about a half cage um, clean every six months to a year or so, but okay. super low maintenance compared to, you know, traditional means. Well, won't the frogs predate on some of those insects? Yeah, some of them do, like um, springtails and a bunch of the isopods, but we're dealing with some isopod species now where any any adult isopod is just too big for, like, a dart frog to consume. We have some isopods that are nearly an inch long when they're adults. It's absolutely crazy. Oh. <coughs> okay. Well, you know what? Somebody's got, like, say, leopard geckos or bearded dragons or something. There's some new feeders. Yeah, exactly. And that's really cool. We're hoping <laughs> by, um, by December to be able to release a um, – basically a bio-bedding version for desert. So um, we've been working on that oh. for quite a while. So you'd be able to keep your leopard gecko or fat tail gecko. Um, we're also working with a lot of amazing little desert species of geckos, like viper geckos, um, dune geckos, helmeted geckos, um, cute other guys that are really more drier type species that will be able to live in a bioactive setup of like live cacti and succulent and everything. Should be really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like picturing this now and, and that's uh, that does sound really cool. Just basically have a piece of nature right in your living room or something. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's what we're all about. You know, we want to make it easier for people to connect with nature. I'm super super uh-huh. lucky to be able to do this as a job. So if we can kind of 
you know, design that around and do it. You know, I think a lot of us given the chance would be spending time doing it in our basements anyway. You know, I'm in a position where I'm yeah, looking yeah. at oh, a yeah. heck of a team behind me and get paid to do it. So, you know, we're trying to do some really, really cool stuff with, um, with bioactive tanks in Bavaria. So end of 2018, early 2019, we should have a full range of that stuff ready to go for, you know, 80, 90% of the reptile and amphibian species you see out there. Wow. That's some pretty cutting edge stuff. So yeah, a lot of research yeah. and everything goes into it. Um, yeah. but you know, it's a passion. So, you know, it's stuff, like I said, it's stuff I think a lot of us have given a chance would be messing around and tinkering with and doing anyway. And, you yeah. know, we have a lot of res- We have the resources and we have the space and stuff to just, you know, like that bio bedding travel. That was a, that was a two years to um, do. And probably mm-hmm. about, I think we went through about 30 different recipes and tests before we settled on the right one. Oh, wow. And um, you said you had three different greenhouses. I'm guessing you got them set up a little bit different, like one for the cacti and the succulents and, you know, other one more for jungle-type plants, that type, that type of thing, bromelades, all that. Yeah, they're set up right now. They're primarily for tropical plants. Um, desert mm-hmm. plants right now are just a pretty small port, part of our business, so we keep those at the, the okay. main building. But, yeah, we've got a team over at the greenhouse, and, um, you know, what a, a Tina, who runs our plant department, has just been kicking butt with it. Um, Really neat old greenhouse. It was um, it was built and automated to produce orchids back before the laws changed, and a, a lot of them are were imported from overseas. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, really cool automated greenhouse. Actually, was run all the all the computers and stuff were running old. It was an old gateway computer. I don't know if you guys remember those with the the black and white cow print box and everything um, from the late nineties. Oh, really? And um, you know, brought it up to date, modified it a bit, and everything, and doing some really cool stuff just allows us to propagate stuff in house in large amounts, which means, yeah. you know, better plants to offer larger plants to offer and then safer for, you know, for our uses and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. You guys are right on the cutting edge of stuff. That's, uh, that's incredible. Um, wow. Oh, JD, you got anything? No, I can't think of about the word yeah, the bioactive substrate. Like I even hear people like use them for big species, like monitors and stuff. It's it's actually you know a lot of, it, it is like amazing what that you know you can do with the isopods and even uh, like the tropical roaches and stuff. Yeah, it's it's pretty insane, and uh, we're lucky. One of our entomologists um, loves bureaucracy and paperwork, so he's actually he goes through and he handles all of our USDA permits. Because um, a lot of people don't realize all these invertebrates out there are actually regulated by the um, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, most in, a lot of insects are actually considered crop pests, so it can be a very lengthy, um, you know, time to go through and a lot of work to get permits to ship them properly. And then we have to contact each individual state and get permission to do that from them. So hmm. pretty nutty, but wow. you know, definitely pretty awesome too. So it's really cool to see that kind of, you know, going forward and. Um, we're just being able to offer more and more of that kind of stuff on the site. And it just makes, it makes it a lot easier to care for your animals. It makes, it takes a lot less time, which means you have more time to yeah. enjoy them. Then also you're not in there cleaning as much. So you're not bugging the guys nearly as much either. You know, they're kind of in there enjoying life in their own private paradise and you get to watch. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of really liking this. I mean, I mean you got anything that work for say uh, snakes, colubrid snakes. Um, we're such? working on it. 
Yeah, we're actually we're working yeah. on it. The biobedding tropical would probably be a um, good for a lot of species. Um, we're actually my wife has a ball python at home. That's our that's our last snake at home that we're keeping, and so we're in the process. Um, not too distant future, we're going to be setting up. We have a 75 gallon tank that we're setting up as a bioactive enclosure for it with live plants and everything. So it's not that far off. Um, you know, there's a lot of demand for that stuff. One thing that really surprised us too is we released this in a 10 quart bag and immediately got asked about buying it in huge amounts for people with like large monitors. Um, take use were another big one that I kind of didn't think, but a lot of people doing these large, you know, four foot by eight foot, six foot by eight foot enclosures. And they want to put a, uh, you know, a foot deep, a substrate in there for the guy to dig and stuff in. So, um, yeah. you know, we'll be do, looking at doing bigger bags of that and everything, but really, really cool stuff. Um, you know, the European hobby has been kind of going in this direction for about 10 or 15 years. And in the U.S., it kind of it seemed like it kind of got stuck on dart frogs for a while. But now I think everybody's trying to keep, you know, a lot of different species on bioactive setups and everything, too, which if done right, you know, it can be really beneficial to the animal. Yeah. Beneficial to the keeper, too, so they don't have to do as much cleaning. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you set that tank up right, I mean, you're not pulling poop out of it, and it doesn't smell. You know, if anything, it smells like a fresh forest. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. All right, Zach, um, we're getting close to the time for mid-show break, so we're going to go ahead and play some rock, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Sounds good, guys.
All right, we're back. You're listening to Urban Time Radio. I'm Justin Geyer. I'm with the wild man, J.D. Hartzell. We are talking to Zach Brinks from uh, Josh's Frogs. And if you want to call into the show, cut your long story short, the call-in number is 213-943-3644. Anyway, we had a pretty interesting first half. Um, Zach really got to talking about the bioactive substrates, and it's something very interesting. And um, I think it's cool. I think it's really cutting-edge stuff. Um, I think it's something that can basically revolutionize herpeticulture. So, Zach, <laughs> what do you want to tell us that you didn't tell us earlier? Um, got some really cool species breeding up at work that I've like, you know, super geeked about. I'd love to share with you guys. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys ever heard of uh, Malaysian leaf frogs? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my, yeah. One of my coworkers, Austin, um, he spent a ton of time researching those guys. Um, actually, um, looked up the literature review and found a scientific paper, um, from one of the keepers at um, the Cologne Zoo in Germany, and um, used that, and then some some gut instinct and some skilled knowledge, and um, was able to produce them. We actually have had two batches of those guys, uh, which is awesome. They've been produced before in captivity, but not very often, and generally not in large amounts. Um, so we're really excited to have. We have uh, probably about 800 tadpoles still in the water, 600 tadpoles still in the water, and um, wow. several dozen froglets out. Um, really geeked. A lot of those guys have been being picked up by um, zoos around the country just because, you know, captive bred so much easier to work with than wild caught. And yeah. um, we're excited. Um, we're kind of troubleshooting those guys. Um, we found one of their big um, kind of things that was holding them back from success are a big frog, but they're stream breeders. And um, the females and males will lay eggs right underneath the water surface and are right on the water's um, edge um, on a flat surface. So you got to give them the space to do so. Um, and they lay mm-hmm. thousands of eggs at a time, can be two to 4,000 eggs. So they sometimes need, you know, a couple feet of straight space to lay these eggs on. So providing them that is really huge. Um, yeah. The neat thing about them is if we're, if we're able to have two really successful clutches a year, we can produce more uh, Malaysian leaf frogs in captivity in a um, one small room at Josh's Frogs and are brought in from the wild into the U.S. every year. So they're one of our, those species we can really target to try to um, kind of supplant the demand for wild-caught animals with healthy, um, inexpensive captive-bred ones. So it should be really cool. Absolutely. We're raising a bunch of these back for future breeders, but awesome, big, huge, gnarly-looking frogs. Yeah, yeah. Now, that is really cool, especially taking the, the uh, little bit of pressure off the wild populations. That helps out a lot. Now, with those Malaysian leaf frogs, um, or jo- not Josh, I'm sorry about that, Zach. Um, <laughs> no worries. You said <laughs> I got Josh's frogs on my mind. I'm sorry. Um, uh, yeah, no worries. I've, I've never heard that before. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But you said they're stream breeders, so the question I've got is, is uh, do you have to put a current through the water? Um, and that's what's really cool is we don't seem to have to use a, put a current through the water to get them to breed. Um, we just have to keep the ta- the water that the tadpoles are in really, really oxygenated. So instead of doing a current, okay. we just simply use um, sponge filters or air bubblers, just, um, you know, air stones, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is really cool. Uh, one of the guys who does a lot of our tadpole care now, Tim, who um, I actually borrowed, he was he was employed at the local Petco out here. Mm-hmm. Me, I used to buy saltwater fish from him sometimes and um, offered him a job. He came along and he does all of our tadpole care and stuff now for a lot of the different animals. 
So he's been able to use a lot of his fish scales to help us just do a ton better with these tadpoles. Um, they're really right. unique. They're really streamlined, you know, which makes sense. They live in a stream. And if you think of where, like, the food is in the stream, a lot of that's falling into the water, bugs and everything. So they have this yeah. crazy projection uh, from the lower jaw. It's almost like an upward-facing funnel. And they actually skim the water surface to eat debris off and stuff off the water surface. So we feed them this really fine powdered diet we made. And then um, in the tank, since they won't eat anything that's not on the surface, we put Corydoras catfish, those little aquarium catfish down there. Yeah. Help keep things clean for any food or waste or anything that they miss eating. So really right, fascinating, so the, cool, oddball little tadpoles, though. Yeah, so the tadpoles are carnivorous then. Yeah, primarily. They will eat some plant matter, but, yeah, they're eating uh, probably a lot of insect larvae, things of that nature in the wild. And they just kind of skin the surface of the water for little stuff. And then, um, you know, and anything the way, they miss, these catfish get to eat. Yeah, yeah. And the way he's kind of describing their mouth, I just had this this visual of like a dragonfly nymph-type mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These guys are not like actually like munching on stuff. They they skim. So they have this, it's almost like part uh-huh. of a big half of a funnel coming off their bottom jaw. And I think they're just funneling little particulate matter and little bits of stuff off the surface of the water. Really cool. Um, they're doing really yeah. well off of... Um, a diet that's getting a, has some fish protein in it, some insect protein, and some algaes, and they're thriving on okay. that. Um, it is crazy. They can take up to a year to come out of the water, though. So pretty nuts. Oh, really? Wow. They, they spent a, long, a little while to grow. Um, yeah. Or a little while to mature. All right. You said you had a few species. What else you got? Um, something is uh, one species that's really cool. It's also, unfortunately, super common, so we have no idea how they're going to go. You ever heard of smooth-sided toads, Bufo gutata? No, I don't, I don't believe I have. They're really, they're really big toads. Um, they're really commonly used for outreach. They're nearly the same size, a uh, little bit smaller, but they're think of them almost like a big cane toad, but they have nice red yeah. sides. Um, they're a South American species, and we actually ended up getting some not too long ago, um, I think about a year, year and a half ago or so, when a hurricane was going through Florida, and it was kind of one of those help clear these animals out type thing. So we got some, I think we ended up with 20 of them. We only ended up with one or two girls, but um, we bred them and we got over 12,000 eggs. So we decided to go ahead and raise a bunch of those up. So they've been coming out of the water for, I want to say maybe three weeks now. And so far we have, I think um, Austin pulled our 1300th of them today. And they're strong little toads. um, Awesome look at pets. You know, they're pretty big. They tend to be really tame. Eventually, you're talking about a toad that gets eight inches plus. So really, you know, good-sized toad. Um, really yeah. cool, and they're really rarely available as captive bred. So we have no idea how well they're going to sell or anything, but we're going to have a bunch of them, and they're going to be really inexpensive. So check them out. <laughs> really neat animals, though. And that's another case of taking the pressure off a of wild population. So Yeah, hey, yeah exactly. I mean, yeah, and that's our that's ultimate goal. Deal. I think there's always going to be an – go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I just said that. I said that, that sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's always going to be a need for small wild caught imports just to, you know, bring in new species to work with and help maintain bloodlines and everything. But I think we mm-hmm. can cut it drastically and really, you know, um, supply most of the demand for these animals and the pet trade and stuff with healthy captive bred animals. I think that's really kind of the wave of the future, especially with all these horrible emergent diseases that are, um, you know, really negatively impacting amphibian populations worldwide. I think the pet trade can do a lot better job about getting um, a little bit more responsible when it comes to that kind of stuff and, you know, taking care of not only the animals, 
that are under our care directly for those species, both in captivity in the wild and the environment in general. Well said. Very well said. All right, J.D., you're being quiet over there. What do you got? Uh, uh, Zach, I wanted to ask you about your podcast with uh, the Asian climbing toes. I mean, you have ever you first bred them, and uh, they are awesome-looking toads, man. Yeah, they are really, really cool. Um, we did have a little bit of a setback just with some of our older wild-caught animals passing away, but we've been raising up future generations, so we get little bits of breedings here or there. Um, this year we've gotten two big clutches. Unfortunately, the first clutch was almost entirely bad. And a second clutch, which is currently in the water, we only got a few hundred tadpoles. Um, but it looks good. We're already cycling up a lot of females for um, one more attempt this year and then next spring. Um, it's really cool. Um, I couldn't believe it, but um, I mentioned earlier we did our first European import of frogs. And the whole way that kind of came to be was um, an importer originally reached out to me because they wanted to bring a bunch of them over to Europe because they're super eager to have a bunch of them over there. So hopefully next year we'll be able to provide them with a lot of these awesome animals. Um, now, what, you know, now, we're now expecting... they... Oops, sorry. Sorry there, Zach. No, go ahead, man. Uh, I was going to ask you, what else did you uh, acquire from the European imports? Um, or the... Really neat. Um, we actually, one of my favorite frogs that we got from the European import is probably a frog that people are going to question why we got. They're European green tree frogs, Pylarborea. Um, they look a lot like our um, green tree frogs in, in um, the Americas. But, you know, they're a little bit more exotic. And also we like it because they are an exotic animal. You know, they're regulated differently. People don't have to worry about their state laws when it comes to keeping native Right. Um, you know, we're super reluctant to work with um, animals that occur naturally um, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of, you know, some of the different states <laughs> and even local laws that we may not be aware of or um, even the keepers who are ordering the animals from us <laughs> may not be aware of that could potentially get them in trouble. So this was a really cool, pop, you know, chance to have a, relatively inexpensive little you know green tree frog that looks incredibly similar it's a really cool um example of convergent evolution you know this is nearly identical to the american green tree frog in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, we brought over a new blood brand new bloodline of um, highly ibricata the hourglass tree frog which those have you know been really hard to find in the hobby lately just because um they don't tend to be horribly long-lived you know adults live a couple few years and um they're they've been really really inbred just because there's not a ton of people working with them and so being able to bring in new bloodlines means we can kind of revitalize those a little bit here um, we also brought in um pipa parva which i'm sure everybody's familiar with pipa pipa the Suriname toad those big mm-hmm. flat aquatic frogs that have all the babies pop yeah. out of their back pipa parva is basically a miniature version of that which up until fairly recently was almost was you'd almost never see in the private trade. Occasionally, you'd see them in zoos and such. They lay the eggs on the back, and then the, the eggs hatch out in little tadpoles somewhere around. Um, but, you know, a really cool, fascinating aquatic frog from South America. I think they're primarily from Venezuela that um, you just don't get a chance to work with. So we were really excited. We're keeping some of those back for breeders, and we'll have a lot of those guys available. They're almost out of quarantine, and they're doing wonderfully. We're actually going to premiere a lot of this European stuff at um, – the Tinley Park NARBC show um, weekend after next. So, um, you know, that'll be exciting. Also, um, Triprion, which are like sometimes called like the cask-headed or the, the duck-billed tree frog. They're the frogs that almost kind of look like they have a duck bill on them, and they um, hunker down and hang out in bromeliads and use that head almost as like a trap door to protect them when they sleep at night. Uh-huh. Yeah, so just really, really uh, neat animals. We also brought over some um, 
Bombina variegata, which are a lot like our common firebelly toads, except they're a little bit different colored and have bright yellow bellies, and they're a little bit larger. But, you know, just kind of like a firebelly toad, but just something that's a lot rarer and a little bit more oddball for people who are looking for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, do you keep them? Do you keep them about like a fire belly, or are they more like an aquatic toad? Um, you keep them identical to a fire belly toad. Um, some of the literature suggests that they can appreciate it a little bit cooler, but that's not absolutely necessary. So we're okay. like with any of this stuff. Anything that we bring in, um, we'll keep some of it and to to breed and try to you know help establish it here in the hobby um, in the U.S. and then um, you know offer some of it to our customers and such. But super super excited to pair with this. Um, this also um, kind of is a, a stepping stone towards what we're working for is we're working on um, directly exporting our own animals over to Europe. And then uh, we're hoping next year, or maybe 2020, actually vending at ham in Germany. So it'd be a really cool opportunity for us. Wow. Yeah, that would be. That, that, yeah, really. Wow. There's a lot, lot of logistics involved in that. There are a lot of logistics. Um, even getting tables at that show can be incredibly difficult, uh, we've been told. And then getting the, shipping the animals internationally and getting all that paperwork. Um, you know, a lot of our stuff is CITES. So there's that, not only are there the fish and wildlife <laughs> export and then the import to the country over there, but um, then all the CITES paperwork to make sure everything we do is completely on the up and up and transparent. So a lot of work, but we all think right. it's really going to be worth it. Well, I hope it is, man. hope it looks out good for you. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. Heck, I want to go to Germany. They have really cool pet stores over there. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> don't turn down don't turn down a chance to go somewhere you've never been. Heck. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. I, I think I've like doubled just the number of states in the union I visited to, um, just for doing shows for work. So, yeah, it'd be really cool, really neat opportunity to see. You know how the the other you know other parts of the world keep and interact with these animals and everything. It'd be really neat. Well, Zach, um, what what shows here in the states are, are you guys been vending at? Um, we've been doing a lot of the larger shows. Um, a couple few years ago, we started doing shows out on the West Coast, which has been awesome. So um, we're doing all of the, the reptile super, super shows. There's, um, I think it's um, January and August, Pomona, and then um, a July San Diego show out in California, which um, yeah. Rami, the guy who puts on those shows, just does a killer job of it, and they're some of the biggest in the country. Um, we've also, we're going to be at the upcoming Phoenix show in Arizona in November. Um, we kind of cut back a lot on some of the Repticons, but we're still doing uh, most of the Baltimore and Raleigh shows. Um, we still do NARBC, the, um, the shows in Arlington and then in Chicago. Uh-huh. And, uh, we also make it down to Daytona for the, the NRBE, the National Reptile Breeder Expo put on by, um, down there, um, you know, in Daytona okay. every August. So, which is a really cool show. Yeah. And then in 2019, we're looking at doing, um, possibly starting up some of the more local shows um, here in Michigan again with some of our newer employees, and then even some of the shows that we can drive to in a day or two. Um, so a lot of the shows on the East Coast. Um, we've started doing these yeah. Expo shows in Rochester, New, New York, which we just love. Um, talking about a passionate group of people putting on a heck of a show. Um, we'll be there, I think. Actually, it's November 3rd, so a little over a month we'll be there again. That's a really cool one-day uh-huh. show, and it's really awesome historical armory that they're already outgrowing, I think. But, yeah. Really cool. Um, I don't travel nearly as much uh, myself to these shows as I used to, especially now I got a kid and everything. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, as we've yeah, but fortunately <laughs> as we've grown, we've been able to bring on some really, really talented, passionate people. 
a lot of even even a lot more talented when it comes to reptiles and amphibians than I certainly ever was or could dream to be. And, you know, fortunately, a lot of them are, are willing to travel. So it's pretty cool sending them around the country and checking stuff out. Well, actually, uh, we were at, just at the Sacramento Reptile Show this last weekend. Um, okay. It's just really cool to see this hobby grow. And it used to be, like, tough just finding shows, and now it's tough figuring out what shows to do just because there's so many. Um, it's oh, fantastic to see the hobby. Yeah, it's become so mainstream compared to where it has been previously. Yeah. So it's a really exciting exciting to see reptiles and amphibians, you know, starting to fit under more of that label as almost domestic animals instead of exotics. I think over time right. we're going to see more and more of that, which means that stuff's just that much more accessible <laughs> to people, which is really cool. I remember, Zach, that... In 2013, J.D. and I, we were at the uh, Repticon in Baltimore vending. Um, hell, I don't even remember. That was like, what, May, J.D.? What time of year, what time of year was that? Probably, yeah. That, that was one of that's the bigger <laughs> show, I think, May. Yeah, it was like yeah, it was, it was pretty big show. around there. <laughs> it was something like that. Was, you know, that was five years ago. Um, but, yeah, it was a pretty big show, and well, if your your crew ever vends in Indianapolis or St. Louis, tell them to come over and say hi to me. Yeah, definitely, definitely. St. Louis was one of our ones to check out, um, as well as Indianapolis. I used to do that show years ago, um, but we okay. kind of got to a point when we were at about seven or eight employees where we were just growing too fast, and it was when we actually moved out of Josh's house and <laughs> we actually started renting a building, and I ended up having to just cut back on a bunch of shows just because we didn't have the manpower. Yeah, the indie show yeah. was really fun. I used to, I remember doing that, and I'd do it back-to-back. It was normally back-to-back to the Noblesville show for um, Scott mm-hmm. Smith's All Animal Expo up near Chicago. So I'd make that drive during a weekend, leave school Friday. Mm-hmm. Josh would meet Josh at my house or with um, with a trailer full of goods and everything and a cooler full of animals and hit the road and then get back late Sunday and just in time to get to sleep and wake my butt up, shower, and get off to college. So, yeah, good. Day. <laughs> yeah, good times. Yeah, we've been um, vending the uh, the Indianapolis show, the one that Brian Hahn runs. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he, he owns ARS. Uh, we've been vending there for uh, quite a while now, and it's well, we were just there yesterday, and uh, did it's a very good show. And then um, we vend cool. the uh, Show Me, the Show Me Reptiles and Exotics show in St. Louis that Mickey Meyer runs, and um, we we actually oh a few shows ago. Um, Zach, we did an interview with Mickey about his reptile show. If you want to check that out, you just have to go back a I few might just shows. Have to do that. There it is. Yeah, well, um, Mickey's a Mickey's a workhorse. He he advertises and promotes the heck out of that show, and um, he just expanded into Springfield, Missouri. Um, which right now, with me and my whole crew working full time jobs on top of this, that's that's outside of our range. Um, but we're hitting St. Louis every single time, and that show is just amazing. Um, it's one of those that as soon as the doors open, you can't hardly walk down the aisles. You know, if you step Very out in the cool. parking lot, cars cars are driving around looking for a place to park. So it's it's a busy show, and, and we we pretty well always do really well there. So, yeah, if you guys consider those, um, I'd love to see you guys there, maybe meet, you know, some of your crew or, and you'll possibly even yourself in person. Um, but if you do make the shows, I will be there. Yeah, very cool. I'll definitely have to make sure that one's on the list. It's it's just really, really amazing how much the, just the reptile amphibian hobby has grown in the past, you know, decade, much less. You know, when I was 
Yeah. You know, I was only born in 85. You know, I'm a pretty young and compared to a lot of people out there. But, you know, even in like the, the late 90s and stuff, I could already see, you know, I was 14 or 15 and starting to see just how much different it was. And when my interest started when I was seven or eight. And, you know, now it's just it's absolutely crazy to see how how widespread and successful and even how, um, you know, how more traditional some of these once really exotic pets are becoming. Um, really oh, yeah. awesome. Really, really good things, I think, for us long term. Yeah, I mean, look at stuff like bearded dragons. I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you yeah. even count how many captured bearded dragons there are in this country. Um, yeah, exactly. There's yeah, a lot I'm of to see people, you know, just take on these little, like, passion or pet projects. You know, the one or two oddball species they just yep. really, really enjoy. Um, that's something we're really working on. Um, there's so many of these smaller um, gecko species and stuff, which are out there, and they're available if you look for them but they're not available in quantities enough to kind of help get their price down and everything to where they're more accessible right. to most people. And uh, we're really, right. there's a lot of these little diurnal desert geckos, just, just amazing little interactive pets. It's almost like a pocket bearded dragon. You can sit there and watch and, you know, a 10 gallon setup. It's really cool. I think they're going to be hopefully huh. a little bit more mainstream in the coming years and stuff. Oh yeah. You just got to give it a little bit of time, but yeah. And then you just hit on something that I, I couldn't agree with you more on. Zach and I wholeheartedly believe in, you know, if you've got the skills and the desire and the ability to work with and breed reptiles and amphibians, I think it's important to work with, you know, one or a couple of uh, rare, rarer species just to, just to make sure that they're always still going to be here, make sure somebody still cares about them. And that's just kind of the way I see that. Yeah, exactly. There are so many species that were, you know, really common when I was a kid that were, you know, five, ten dollar imports from from Africa or Southeast Asia or the Middle East that you you can't find anymore. And when you do, they're hundreds upon hundreds of dollars because nobody bothered to work with them when they were cheap, you know, common imports. Right. um, You know, hopefully we see more of that kind of stuff pop up. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, leopard geckos and bearded dragons and corn snakes and ball pythons, they're always going to have a huge place in the hobby. Um, yeah. But I think um, just us as keepers and, you know, everything are just doing a better job of showing, you know, the, the general public and new people to the hobby, just the sheer diversity of animals out there. Um, just just the variety that, you know, is kind of nature's already prepared for us that we can, you know, take into captivity in small numbers and figure out and breed and produce and you know, offer up is just just astounding. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, all right, JD, you got anything? Uh, I want to thank uh, Zach for coming on. You know, it's been a long time, and uh, congrats on the baby girl there. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. It's definitely it's definitely an adventure. Yeah, my wife is convinced that her first. Um, her first word is going to be some obscure genus, a frog or something like that. So I'll get to work seeing if I can make sure that happens, you know. Now, Zach, I know a guy, and this is a true story. When his son was a baby, he would read to him straight from a field guide. <laughs> hey, hey, my daughter was three weeks old on Saturday, and she's already She's already read um, a few a few chapters or whatnot, or been read too anyway. A few chapters out of Jim Harding's most recent field guide, the Midwest Terps and stuff with Dave. That's a that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, there you go. So, no faults there. She read that and then a couple of the old um, old David Attenborough books. 
So, yeah, really cool stuff. That is cool stuff. Anyway, Zach, I, you know, it was, it was really good talking to you again. I mean, there for a while you were pretty well a regular on the show, and maybe we can get back to that. Um, so, but it's been great having you on. It's very been a very interesting conversation here. Yeah, good deal, guys. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wind it down. Zach, thanks again, bud, and, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? No worries. Take care, guys. Thanks, Zach. Bye. Later. All right, Jay, what do you think? I think just, you know, Zach is always, when he comes on, he always has a lot of other information. It's hard to oh, yeah. just pick one. That bioactive uh, substrate, though, I mean, that, that has come a long way, and, you know, that could change a lot. Lot in the game from cleaning snake poop and stuff. Oh yeah, that's a game changer. That's some revolutionary <laughs> stuff. That can that can revolutionize all of her pediculture. Um, that was really cool to hear about that. So, you know, yeah. Um, but you know, Zach's a guy I'd, I'd love to just hang out with and talk to about this stuff for a while. I bet it. I bet that'd be really interesting. So, He's a very cool guy. Very cool. All right, JD. Uh, let's see who we got coming on next time. Next, our show will be on Wednesday, and we're going to have a jam session. So, uh, going to be the Herpa Time Jam session. All right. Awesome. And then, well, and then we'll we're going to jam out. I got to get more more music on there, but uh, <laughs> work. I'll work on that here in the next couple of days. All right, brother. Don't forget about your cage you're building. Oh, yeah. You know, if, if you see a picture of me built inside the cage and I can't get out, then you'll know where I'm at. If, you know, you can't uh-huh. find me anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, somebody, a... uh, hopefully somebody remembers to feed you. <laughs> well, in case they're, you know, throw me, throw me in some rats or something, you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you ready to rock? You ready to rock, brother. All right, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to Herpin' Time Radio. Maybe, you know, do you, you want to do it again later?